Merlin Donald is a fellow of the Canadian Psychological Association, the World Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Royal Society of Canada. He is the author of two influential books, Origins of the Modern Mind and A Mind So Rare. His early work on human cognitive evolution was unique in its incorporation of both technology and culture into a theory grounded in brain function and brain evolution. He's currently working on an issue that concerns us all, the potentially radical effect of high technology on human cognitive evolution. Merlin Donald, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. So as a neuroscientist, tell us a little bit about your journey. It wasn't straightforward. What drew you to cognitive neuroscience? How did the other things that you study feed your curiosity about it? Well, that, that's a long story. <laughs> I started off in a very different space. Um, I was educated by Jesuits in high school and college as an undergraduate and in an all boys environment. And it's an archaic system now, I suppose, but at that time it was fairly common. And I had been given a classical education. So that means education very much like what James Joyce would have had, you know, 100 years ago. And very big focus on the classical humanities. And I never studied psychology or neuroscience. But I did study biology in some detail, and I was very influenced by a number of people, but including Pierre Teilhard de Jardin, and also, I would have to say, Marshall McLuhan and Northrop Fry, both here in, in Canada. And I was curious about psychology, so I went and studied psychology, and I decided after about three months that this is ridiculous. It was superficial, it was demeaning, reduced humans to butterflies, as far as I could see, and did not appreciate the nuances of culture. And so I, I saw it as really the language of the enemy initially, but gradually I realized that I had to learn about it because there are truths in it that are necessary. And so the next thing I knew, I was at McGill, which was one of the great centers at that time, probably the world center of neuropsychology and uh, physiological psychology, uh, studying with uh, Donald Hebb and various other people. And I gradually adapted to that situation. I'm a pretty quick learner. So I ended up inheriting this enormous laboratory that, and, and doing some fairly cutting edge research on the electrical activity of the brain. And then, you know, one thing led to another. I went on to do a postdoc in the US in New Haven, and then I did a number of other things. And in my 40s, after I finally realized my real goal, which was to try to unify this rather dry, objective view of the, of, of the mind with what was really my core, which was culture itself, especially high culture, but you know, even the anthropological view of pop culture. So, and, and that was my project. So I, my goal was by 50, I had to produce this huge book <laughs> and I just made it. <laughs> it came out in 1991 and I think it had a, a fair impact at that point. And I ended up being becoming a cognitive cognitive archeologist, but that requires you to integrate all kinds of different disciplines, you know, you can't ignore anything. And so uh, that's how I got 
to where I am. I have a very poetic side. I write poetry and I've had some translated. So I had to merge that somehow with the objectivity of, of science, which is where we're at as, as, a, as a species worldwide, isn't it? I mean, our new culture of global integration doesn't necessarily fit that well with our deeper needs, our spiritual needs. And that's, that's uh, one of my obsessions at the present moment. Yes, and we should say that those books that you are, are known, perhaps best known for, Origins of the Modern Mind and A Mind So Rare, have really changed the way so many of us think about neuroscience and, and cognition. I think it's really important because it's not always a perspective that uh, neuroscientists might put forward that we are informed by our culture. As you identify, there might be a kind of mechanistic viewpoint or measurements taking place but I feel like even if you go back to the Bible, where when the beginning was the word, this is something we're so informed by our language and our cultural projects, you know, they're not just something we produce. They also, as I, you go into now about technology, another invention, they also influence us. And we are now at this important moment in what you identify now as we're going into a, like a possible fourth transition. Can you tell us about human consciousness in relation to these transitions? Well, yes, that's, that's an interesting, I mean, that's been my obsession, really. Uh, the, the first three transitions, the first one was strictly a biological shift, which was that uh, probably three and a half million years ago when we were still called Australopithecines, our, our distant ancestors, Lucy, if you maybe remember that monumental discovery by Johansson. Well, that species lived around three and a half million years ago, and it seems that they were making tools. And it was a primitive period, but and it lasted for a very long time, a million and a half years at least, where they, they used these very primitive stone tools. But the thing about a stone tool is that it's the hardest, sharpest thing around, and you can make other tools with it. You can, for example, sharpen a spear or cut a tether out of leather or something like that. that. And now that's been known for a long time, but what I did was I analyzed it from a psychological point of view. What does that mean? Apes simply don't do this. They don't refine a tool. The, the more advanced tools start to appear around 2 million years ago. So that's a very long time ago. And that's when species Homo, our species, first appeared. And now the implication of this is really huge because I think this is what our core is, even in culture, even in the most advanced cultures. What we can do when we make a tool is we accurately remember a previous action and then we evaluate it and we modify it and then we produce the action improved and we do this over and over again we call it rehearsal and eventually what you have is uh, very specialized memories that we call procedural memories in psychology and you get thousands of these things and you fill up your brain with procedural memories so you can do all kinds of things now, the significant thing here is that language itself is a very complex chain of procedural memories. So once you're able to modify and produce an action that you have modified and refined over and over again in context of, of a social life, then you suddenly open up the, the door to, to language. And so what we have here is a creature who's very good at using the whole body to create refinements of action in public 
space. So, because one of the things about action is you can share it, you can express it. We're able to reflect on our body's action. And it's not just the hands or the mouth or whatever, it's the whole body in a social context. And of course that has enormous ramifications because it means that eventually through a, a very gradual process of evolution, we started producing uh, a standard negotiated thing called language. And, and languages are, in my view, not innate, they are invented. We agree on the meaning of, a, of an action and we teach it to our children and the child acquires it over a, a very painstaking period of learning. And, and then they join the, the social group. So that was our first and second transitions. We go from the mimesis, the expression of the whole body, to language, which is, of course, a, mostly a vocal channel. And that gets us going into what we call the Upper Paleolithic when you before we started urbanizing and getting fancy. <laughs> it was a, a long biological process that became a social process. Then that leads to cultural memory, the accumulation of knowledge over time. And that's what we do, right? We're as a species, we learn as a group and, and we're totally dependent on one another. I don't think there's any such thing as a genius. What you have is people supporting one another over time and space. And we're overachievers. So we have the history of two million years of experience packed into our heads, which we could never possibly do as an isolated creature. We're we're smarter than apes, I suppose, in some ways, but not that much more. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Anyway. One thing is that you was you identify as a theoretical stage, and I guess this. Oh yes, that's stage. much. Yes, yeah, that's much later. So what happens is that as we get better and better at refining our procedural memories, we eventually reach a point where we create a public space of what I call exagrams, and so. In many ways, the story of human evolution is a, is a story of progress in metacognition, progress in the ability to reflect on our own activity, our own bodies, our own sensations, our own ideas, and of course, on our, the creation of the self as, as a sort of an explicit idea of who you are is the ultimate example of that kind of metacognition. So I've tied all that together in my, mostly in my second book. But exagrams change everything because once you, exagrams are the opposite of an engram. An exagram is a memory record outside the brain. And of course, we're surrounded by memory records. I mean, my office, for example, is, is one enormous exagram. I've got books, I've got papers, I've got pictures. The thing about exagrams is that they escape the brain. You can transmit knowledge into a permanent form, reformat it any way you want, transmitted across time and space. It's a revolutionary change. And so that's why I include that as the third transition, a major, major change. It's not just about literacy. It's also about art. It's also about performance art. It's about music and so on. They all involve exagrams, especially once music gets to the point of complexity, you have to have notations and those are exagrams, right? So that was the third transition. And my concern is that now, in the late stage of the Industrial Revolution, when we're electrifying the entire planet Earth, that we may be entering a fourth transition. The fourth transition is all about whether the exagrams have now become an active source of 
thought that is they're animated uh, they don't have souls but all of a sudden exograms have agency that's a huge change and i i share with people like stephen hawking who who was very concerned about the the internet the the fear that maybe the exographic revolution now that it has become an agency related revolution might dominate us might change human nature in a sense and slave us mentally I think that in terms of artificial intelligence, I mean, it's not just exograms, but it's also companies like Neuralink formed by Elon Musk, where there's neural engineering. I think that that it's very important to be cautious because as you say, we're becoming a little bit irrelevant, the animate element. And as you identify the machine element, in some ways is manipulating us through algorithms. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. There, There is a risk. There's no question. There's a huge risk with artificial intelligence and more and more intelligent objects in the, in the environment. And I'm not just concerned about surveillance, which I think is a very serious issue, and privacy, loss of privacy, but I'm worried about reducing humans to architectural components in a in a managerial diagram i mean if you work for amazon in one of those giant warehouses are you any better off than a galley slave you know i'm not sure you are maybe you're a little better paid you get a shower every day that's that's fine but i mean mentally are you any better off you might be worse off less equipped and with less leisure time to do any thinking for yourself so that requires you to reflect on human nature and who we are and what we are and so on. It's a tough thing. And I think artists have picked up on that in their own way for now 50 or 60 years. We have all the post-World War II art. It, it is so pessimistic and so agonized in different ways, you know. Anyway, that's, don't get me going on that. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's an issue that concerns me. As we move into, you know, we have climate change, Mm -hmm. that we are facing our own extinction, and then we can almost not stop it, or maybe our addiction to these devices makes us lose track of, you know, what's most essential. I feel like any animal on this planet, when faced with their own extinction, is not going to be going on Instagram, you know, liking photos. They're going to think, how can I survive this? And it's quite interesting, and I'm sure you've read about there's some elephants in Africa who have stopped growing tusks so they won't be poached. So they're able to make, I, I'm gonna, will I live or will I stop growing these tusks that are making people kill me? And we are less willing to go through hardship. You know, we can't almost separate ourselves from the machines. Yeah, well, I think the, the elephants also, it might be a question of selection. That is, when you cut your grass, after a while, only the shortest dandelions survive <laughs> because they miss the blades of the mower. But I think in the case of, of human beings, we're facing an existential threat, partly because the middle of the 20th century, there were so few of us. I mean, there were a billion people at the turn of the 20th century, about 2 billion by the, the end of the Second World War. And now we're, we're close to 8 billion. Well, that's crazy. I mean, historically, I don't think 
it's like a plague of locusts, you know, we, there's just too many of us and we're too demanding because we consume more and more materials. So in a sense, we're, we're consuming the planet we live on and there are no other places for us in the universe. This is, this is our home. We have to live here. I don't think it's realistic to think of moving us to another planet as some people believe. So we have to make do here. And I'm concerned that to do it, we need our computers, we need our internet and so on. There's no question about that. But what are we becoming in the process of adopting all this technology? Psychologically, who are we? What are we? What should a human being aspire to become? Now, in, in my sort of classical education, the ideal was, if you want a kind of Renaissance person with a wide variety of interests, a full life, you know, that's what you should aspire to. And of course, the religious dimension or the mystical dimension is crucial in the sense that you, you, your life must be meaningful. It must be, in, in, in essence, kind of leading somewhere or have an objective. And that's why the axial age comes in and, and the idea that we need to rethink our whole approach. We, we have gone through a massive change, those of us in the Western world, drifting away from Christianity, which was the, the core of, of Western civilization for almost 2000 years towards, well, what is it? An empty shell in some ways. And we need somehow to regain our optimism and our sense of purpose and our sense of decency. And so to me, that suggests that we need a much better substitute than religion that we've had in the past. Psychological therapy, for example, which has been a kind of obsession for almost 100 years with psychoanalysis and drugs and everything else, is hopelessly inadequate in its own way. I mean, let's say you, you, you're struggling with a spiritual tension and depression and all kinds of other things. Seeing a therapist for two hours a week is not equivalent to having a whole community of people who are very supportive and so on. There's no comparison. Uh, we've never found a substitute, and yet we're getting further and further away from the, the way of life that, that people had, let's say, 150, 200 years ago, or let alone 500 years ago. And it's odd that, that in some ways, certainly for the middle class, it could be that people had a more satisfactory lifestyle in the 19th century than they had today with all the all of the luxuries and comforts that we have, which they did not have. Of course, there's less poverty. That's a good thing. But we need a revolution of sorts, but a, a mental re a revolution, a revolution in our expectations of life. Well, I've been mostly concerned with the analyzing the structure of, of the change. You know, lots of people have written books, both optimistic and pessimistic, about the internet. And it, it's a wonderful thing. It gives a, an opportunity to broaden our experience. I think in many ways, the internet is the only hope if we want to eliminate racism and we want to raise the bar across the world. But at the same time, the inequalities are completely ridiculous. They've reached the point of, of insanity. And we have, and I mean that literally, we have a moral issue, you know, is one person ever worth twice as much as another person? Can you justify one human being owning 10 times as much as another person. I don't think you can. I, do, I don't think the president of the biggest corporation in the world is worth 10 times the poorest person in the world. 
but that's not what we have. What we have is he may be worth a million times more, hundred thousand times more. That's crazy. That's literally unsustainable. And so we have to change the way we live. And are we up to it? That's 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 a question. But I think a lot of it can be attributed to the fact that once we had the exographic shell around our heads, it, it's gotten so sophisticated and so complex that. It's yes, more than I, we can handle. Yes. And so with the rise of technology and how fast it's been moving in even like the past recent years, do you think that technology is potentially moving too fast for our minds and for average day people? Absolutely. You're bang on. That's a good question because I, I'll tell you that the rate of change, we, when you think of how slowly human beings changed, for a long time. And what we're doing now, it's like a spinning top, you know. Colin Renfrew, an eminent archaeologist in, in England, once studied a famous paper in which, or had a book about the movement of Indo-European people, European peoples in Europe and the spread of agriculture. Agriculture spread, he estimated, at the rate of 30 miles per generation. <laughs> 30 miles. I go that sometimes to go shopping, you know, 30 miles. And that took an entire generation. And of course, during that time, the environment was transformed. On one side, you had hunter-gatherers of that line. And on the other, you had a densely populated agricultural zone. Now, we have more changes in our mentation every day than they had every generation by far. Okay, so... Now, it's true that you, we have plastic brains and we, we acquire information and we are very good at acquiring new skills, but is this a sustainable rate of change? No, of course not. Coping with that is tearing us apart. And maybe we need somehow to slow things down. Unfortunately, on, on a gut level, they, things sometimes regress. I think the political change that's occurring right now between right and left, and we're seeing something of that here in Canada with the protests in Ottawa, that kind of polarization is very dangerous and it's primitive. You know, it's, it's a regression because if you look at history of, of human beings, that, that fight has been going on for hundreds of years, thousands of years. So we do need to slow things down. And to do that, we need to stabilize our culture. That's the most important thing. And how we do that is, is the question, because in, instead of stabilizing, it seems to be becoming very unstable and uh, I, I shudder to think of what could happen. I think of the Gang of Four in China or the, the Communist Revolution in Russia. And so on. it's not pretty <laughs> when things start to happen that way. Things get out of control and human beings discover that they're not as refined as they thought they were. <laughs> so that's the danger. And you're absolutely right on that question. You know, we've just come out of our fairly recently, the COP26, and we're, as you say, uh, facing these existential threats. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering how neuroscientists and psychologists could be maybe have a seat at the table because to help people realize, to help politicians move faster, to help corporations move faster, and to, you know, help the message get across 
in yeah. a way because we it's not just that we have to do it we have to do it now and I'm just wondering does that you know are you frustrated at the slowness like all of us and how maybe you could apply some of your discoveries I'm frustrated about the slowness but I'm not sure any of my discoveries will solve the practical problem of how do you get people to come together just look at the struggle in the states the Trumpians versus the traditional Republicans versus the progressivists versus the extreme left, how on earth do you get those people into the same room talking the same language? It's a practical problem that has to be solved, I think, on the level of communication. That's why I raised the issue of uh, the actual age, because what a religion is, is, you know, it has nothing to do with belief. <laughs> a religion is about custom and practice, a way of life and a community that has a sense of community. And so we have no substitution for that right now. And one way is that you, you go back in time to, and each group go back to a traditional way of life. That's probably not going to fly in, in this world because then they become tribal and they start fighting and, you know, what you need is something to unify people that cuts across all of that. And I, I don't see it on the horizon right now. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's the sort of thing. If you shift the emphasis, and I think artists, artists are undoubtedly part of this because they have to. Artists are able sometimes to get to people on a very basic level. But I think artists, scientists, scholars, historians, thinkers are essential to this. But the form it's going to take, I can't say because I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm, I'm the past. <laughs> you know, it's up to the young people to figure this out. But that's the, to me, the the greatest challenge of our time. It's the thing that has to be solved. Until we find that magic formula, we're going to get more Donald Trumps and more Victor Orbans and so on, and we're going to find that re regress instead of progressing. Along with what you're saying about so many different sides and you can't get them all into one room, do you think that technology has increased that gap of people not being able to have a civil conversation or discuss these hard topics without divisiveness and fighting? Well, certainly the, the recent revelations about Facebook's formulas, definitely the, their equations amplify anger and negative messages because they're, they get more clicks. They make more money that way. It's crazy. It's just nuts. So solving the internet, the initial problem of the internet as an amplifier of hate would help, but it would just get us back to where we were 10 years ago. I mean, and that, you know, it was, we have a lot of problems before we get any kind of equilibrium. I think the period after the Second World War, I grew up after the Second World War, and that period for about 30 years was a fortuitous time in the West when there was you know, at least decency and decorum in public expression. But it was also a time of the 60s rebellion, which was a form of insanity where people just said, well, no, the past, so what about the past? We'll just throw away everything, you know, and then they became primitive. And it's going to take a long time to rebuild, but we're going to have to come up with something because things are getting out of hand. My work is more theoretical. It's more an attempt to see what we should even aspire to <laughs> and it's trying to frame the problem but there's room for many 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 different points of view here you know you spoke of us as you know, storytelling narrative driven creatures and i'm wondering what your reflections on 
are on the relationship between language as both the tool with which we record our thoughts and ideas, but also how the different languages we speak actually affect how we think and what we notice, what we see and remember. Well, that's an interesting question. I think that Sapir and Worf, famous hypothesis about language forming your thoughts, has been largely debunked. That is, I think that most people think below the surface of, of their language. It's true, the languages constrain the way you express your thoughts, but there are so many, this is a very controversial topic, but there are so many ways in which your thoughts can express themselves in a conventional system like language. For example, there's a a well-known paper produced by a Dutch psychologist many years ago showing that comparing about half a dozen languages, quite different languages, and how they solve the problem of expressing something like this. This is a a coffee cup. The, The relationship of the handle to the cup. In English, we say there's a handle on this cup, but the Dutch and various other languages don't say that. They might have a word for the relationship between the handle and the cup. There's on doesn't on is more this relationship, but they have a different way of saying it. And many different languages solve the problem in different ways. But the point is, they all eventually solve the problem because there's no necessity to the way a language solves a problem. We're we're clever little beasts, but I don't think I think we think below the the linguistic surface, except when we get into things like mathematics, which is one of the interesting things is that the expression, the equation actually is the thought. Whereas in in language, that's not true until you get up to the most abstruse ideas, I suppose, the very abstract ideas. Yes, you're into linguistic space. That's a whole speculation. What, why that happens, how it happens, we don't really know. But we're complicated beasts and, and, and our problems have to be solved sometimes by cutting, you know, the Alexandrian solution. Alexander the Great solved the Gordian knot. He took his sword and cut it. And that's, it's brutal, but sometimes it works. And we need a spiritual revolution. That's what I think. That's my belief. And uh, we could become happier if we aspired to less, we acquired less, we weren't so darn greedy, and we emphasized equity more. And, and I think a lot of people recognize this. The problem is we have a lot of evil in the world, a lot of people who are pathologically selfish and do enormous damage. That doesn't require a PhD to, to understand or solve. It's a political problem. Yes, I think that when we are willing to to give up something for the collective, you don't equate, it's not money, but there's a collective, there's a happiness in the Mm -hmm. people. That's right. our belong this belongs to me and you know and in some cultures mm-hmm. we're, we're more socialist or more it's more intrinsic to the society almost um, all religious cultures are like that people hang together and form a community and they the the system the conventions the customs are more important than anything else i was raised catholic but the the most important thing was the beauty uh, the art the music the sense of that you were part of a community that cared for you and so on. I think that's true of Islam. I think that's true of Judaism. I think that's true of Far Eastern religions. There, there's no question that they're very supportive. And so we need a more universal approach. Similarly, 
kind of support, but something that is global, that's going to be tough. <laughs> but that's what we need. We don't all speak the same language or have the same values. That's uh, right. The, finding the commonalities is really important. And that's why I'm very interested in this cognition and perception, because as you say, like we speak these different languages. And I think that through the studies have shown that we actually have certain blind spots. We might mm -hmm. visually, we may favor something. I think that like one of the most important things I, and I, I'm not good at always doing it, but is listening and kind of observing and understanding when you're trying to come to like coalition building or whatever conversation is mm -hmm. what is the predominant sense or culture in which the person is coming from. So some people are more visual, some people are more you know oral or auditory and you could be talking about the same thing but you have such a vastly different experience of yes. that same story yes absolutely and you can frame them so differently that something that's reassuring to one person causes panic in someone else you know because people get paranoid or they they see secret plots we see this in politics all the time conspiracy theories and we need, I think, a way of slowing down the impact of the world on us. We may not be able to slow down the world altogether, but we might be able to stabilize our minds more effectively than we can stop the whirlwind around us, the material whirlwind, which seems to just keep on going. And I don't see any sign of it slowing down. In fact, I see it accelerating. Now, one possible solution that some people seem to believe in is is it almost a genetic or or a technological one and you raise the issue of uh, neuroscientists who want to implant into the brain a direct connection i think that's extremely dangerous except in cases like cochlear implants or you know with a clear benefit medically to do this on the on a higher level if it ever becomes possible would be i think presumptuous and extremely dangerous. That's that's where I bail out. I, I don't approve of that. Genetic changes, same thing. If you play with genetics, there are very few things that are coded in just a gene or two. Most things, in most cases, you're, you're entering into a very complex system. If you start tinkering with that kind of a system, you don't really know what the ultimate impact is of the change you make. So we're playing with fire. And I think we need to slow down rather than speed up that process. Just go back to the fundamentals. And I, I, I think it's possible that we might do that. You're an artist, are you not? Yes, I, the paint. fundamentals, the joy of art. Um, I wanted to ask you, yes. actually, there's two things. I want to talk about how we can slow down the yes. acceleration, make a natural yes. selection and not speed up evolution because those things take centuries but yeah i'm also interested in that aspect because you must have your own reflections about you know where do ideas come from you know where does the imagination and creativity come mm -hmm. from what element does spontaneity and planning play into it you know in your own ideas where have some of those yes. ideas well okay the the question of imagination i think is key i think animals have imaginations but they, they live in a virtual world just as we do. We live in our imagination. They cannot express what's in their imagination. They found no way to share what I call mind, mind sharing. We live in mind sharing cultures. And so if I meet you and I'm assessing you as a, as a person, one of the things I do and you do and everyone does is to judge how much overlap is there can I let her in this close or further? 
do I have to keep her at a distance? How much do our values agree? How much do our aesthetic choices agree? Our style of life and so on. We all do this. We do a kind of and mental evaluation of, of one another constantly. And when we find a certain kind of alignment, then there's, there's the possibility of intimacy. And so that's a, that's a uniquely human thing. I, I, I don't believe that other animals can do that. Well, the only reason we can do it is that we've created this public space called culture in which we reflect on what, what we see. And in this case, if I hear you speak, I can evaluate what you're saying. I get out of my solipsistic mindset, which is completely private, and I can start to assess what other people think and feel. And of course, art is one very powerful way of doing this. And for example, people are very emotional about their musical choices. It's amazing to see if a couple break up because so-and-so likes this kind of music. I can't possibly hang out with a person who likes that kind of music in center. And this goes on all the time. It's equally true of whether you like a certain author or whether you like a certain painter or, uh, or, or whatever, whether you like motorcycle racing or skiing or whatever. There is this business of using public evidence that is cultural evidence to assess your relationship with another person. And that is very characteristic of human beings alone. Of course, it's one of the great pleasures of life, too, <laughs> you know, aligning yourself with people. Unfortunately, also, it can lead to divisions. But, you know, we are an amazingly variable creature. And the whole issue of human variability and individuality is a huge issue in biology. It's a crucial yes. topic. I think so. I mean, it is a great for bringing, you know, communities together. And I think that culture is a, a critical space where we define who we are, you know, past the politics, past the elections. You know, we don't remember that many politicians from the past, but we do remember those cultural icons. And so I'm wondering, so you write poetry, you're also a scientist. I'm wondering what role has intuition, dreams you know, just that instinct played in some of your breakthroughs. I mean, how much do you ascribe to that? Just having a- That's an interesting question. I, I think a big role. I mean, it's true of, of all theories, no matter how abstract they are, they involve imagination. That's even true of mathematicians. I mean, they'll tell you that they see relationships uh, that you and I don't see, but it's, it, it's nevertheless an imagination issue. It's not a question of just numbers and equations and so on. But certainly in something like theory of mind, you cannot help but use your own experience as well as objective evidence. And it's true that one of the big struggles I went through was dealing with computational linguistics and Chomsky and that sort of mathematical approach to language, because it was of the order of an irresistible tsunami or fad among academics when I was growing up. And if you deviated from it, you, you were thought to be ignorant or something. I mean, they, they were that arrogant. And I think the instinct behind that movement was a deep belief that physicists had solved the world a certain way, and therefore we all had to bore the methods of physics, which turned out to be really good for physics, but not much else. That is, you, you, once you get to chemistry, the, the, the systems are different. Biology, utterly different. When you get to psychology, well, we're in a different planet. I mean, so you can't just borrow the methods of one field and generalize them to something else. But I think that 
that affects your imagination on a deep level. If you think, if you're a painter and you think, well, Rembrandt was the ultimate painter of all time and nothing else works, <laughs> you know, if you have that idea, you're never going to be an impressionist, right? Because on a deep level, you have a certain concept of how things should be done. And that's an imaginative thing that governs your imagination very deeply. And so it's true of everything, you know. Yes, and I think so. I don't think it can be entirely computational because when you're dealing with language, you're not even just dealing with the words. You're dealing and sometimes the greater part of it is the tone and the music of language. That's why sometimes something can say, I don't even really agree with that, but it sounds right. And then we see the rise of politicians who make mm -hmm. great speeches and really move worlds. So mm -hmm. we change words and we change worlds. So uh, yeah, I'm on the side of... I know how much art can move people and uh, we're not logical all the time. I think we're logical this much, the tip of the iceberg, and a lot of us, it's just, <laughs> it's, we don't know what's happening most of the time. I agree with you. I fully agree with you. You know, as you think about the future, we're we're really facing, as you say, with the four transitions, we're facing a turning point. We have to think about our education. We have to think about the future of us on this planet. And as you reflect on the challenges we face and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what teachers or life lessons were important to you? What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Boy, that's a, that's, that's a big one. Well, I think the main thing is keep your humanity. Don't allow yourself to be kidnapped by corporate robots. <laughs> you know, there's many of the people who work for corporations. I feel uh, sympathy for them. And so in a way, I'm sorry for them because they have no choice. They're compelled to do the things they do. But at the top, there's a lot of selfishness and relentless greed and we have to get away from the materialism of this world. We have to get away from the crazy consumerism and, and acquisitions and so on and get back to more modest ambitions in life and, and, and basic things. And if we don't do that, I, I shudder to think of what where the world is going to end up because we can't, we just can't keep consuming the planet and fighting one another on in the way we do. I mean, I, I follow politics now maybe more than I should since I retired, and it can become an obsession. I mean, the things that are happening around the globe. In our society, we live in a, such a comfortable bubble. If you live, well, you live in Paris, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a lovely life and so on, but the vast majority of human beings are living in horrible conditions. One of my sons has worked for many years in NGOs around the world in some of the poorest places, you know, Papua New Guinea and West Africa and various other places. And there's so many civil wars, so many massacres and so on. And a lot of it is a product of the insane greed of the Western world. So you, you can't help but say, if we don't solve that problem of selfishness and greed, we're not going to make it. We're, we're going to blow ourselves up or do something really dumb. Anyway, I'm getting too political. I don't really want to go there. <laughs> but it, it was, that's just where the conversation went.
Well, no, I mean, at the heart of it are your humanistic principles. And uh, we do have to be political because we have to say, we have to be firm about what we value in order to preserve that. And, and it's interesting. So thank you, Professor Merlin Donald, for sharing your humanistic principles, insights into how cognition and human consciousness has changed with culture and technology and helping us consider our evolution and the important choices we face in relation to machines and artificial intelligence. Thank you for adding your voice to the Thank Creative Thank you, Mia. The Creative Process is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchbrooker. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.